Are you guys holding up okay, though, personally? Uh, just hanging around the house? What do you guys miss the most, honestly? Like, woke hats off, like, whatever. Like, what are you guys the most? Movie theaters, easy. Yeah, that's a good one. I Are you not... It's just different, right, than streaming. Different. Yeah. Yeah, there's a movie theater experience. It's real. Seeing people in real life. Yeah, 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 that too. You know, Greg, I miss going on your boat, Greg. Oh, I'm sad you guys couldn't go on the boat. I'm you guys over. That's the main reason I have this podcast is to to have to invite people over to the boat and like serve them like snacks and drinks and things. Wait, you like really have a boat? Like, do you, do you live on the boat? Yeah, I live on my sailboat where we record the podcast when there's not a global pandemic on. Yeah. And <laughs> the main thing that keeps me interested is, yeah, having guests over. I would have loved to have you guys over. We'd have had some. Uh, well, yeah, I've been on your guys' food. podcast before, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We forgot Which to you, I, 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 I never was on a boat. Had. Uh, we were recording <laughs> at Alex's place way back yes. in the day. That was super early. And uh, oh, like, oh, see, I was an OG guest. No, you were. You were the original mm-hmm. guest. You're the first guest ever on Seattle. Sucks. No, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You heard that? I, I didn't even get boat privileges. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I was shocked you were. You haven't been on the boat. Yeah, we. You have to come back. Both of you have to come yeah. back on. You got to come back. I'm on the boat. Um, yeah, when the boat's available. You know, you'll be invited to the this summer's Seattle Sucks Cruise, um, virus dependent. Um, oh hell yeah! Come back for another episode. It's gonna be a Zoom meeting. <laughs> no, no. Hopefully, at some point, we will take this out on the lake with a bunch of people, and you guys should come. But um, uh, but oh, that's yeah. dope. I just restarted. Uh, I restarted Arrested Development. Nice. And I'm just, I'm just imagining the Bluth boat sure. right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> scale it down quite a bit. Uh, it's uh, more homey. Pour down your banana stand. It's yeah, very, little, very classy. Um, was just a little smaller and more homey, and it has sails. Um, oh, cool. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So you guys. Welcome back to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city we love. We're here again, remotely, with some guests. Yeah, an unprecedented pandemic, an unfolding economic depression. Here in Seattle, like everywhere, the underlying iniquities of our society are being laid bare before the eyes of anyone who cares to look upon them. Uh, you know, we've mentioned on this show, Seattle has a massive uh, chronic housing and homelessness disaster ongoing crisis is exacerbating that i think you know would be accepted as a priori in these parts but we don't have to be so customarily glib tonight because we've got with us uh via a free web service that um is i think it's still messed up (laughs) (laughs) it was working (laughs) and then it died it's it's the boat man it's curse c claims another one so Greg has internet through the marina he's docked at, and I think that, that is the issue. Yeah. Having. Yeah, it's okay. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Do you live um in a boat? Yeah. Oh, I, I can hear you now. Yeah, Greg's a man of the sea. Oh, that's awesome. So we have with us Daishik Kim Jr. and Guy Oren, two Seattle-based journalists with national bylines who have actually done the work, the research, and the reporting on our city's continually punitive uh, response against the homeless population, even in the time of Corona. Uh, their latest in the nation is called Seattle Destroyed Homeless Encampments as the Pandemic Raged. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're uh, super excited to talk about these uh, very uplifting stories of uh, the <laughs> sort of uh, brutal denigration of the most helpless and marginalized in our society. Uh and hey, we're not even necessarily talking about coronavirus. Yeah. How did what was the uh, genesis of this uh, reporting in particular? It was this something that you guys started working on just as um, in I guess early March when it was it was show, as you showed here that the navigation teams were still rousting people even like after a state of emergency was declared. Yeah. So I would say that um, for me, I had been we had both 
written and done research about sweeps and homelessness for years. Um, but um, for me, I both me and Day saw like on social media that sweeps were still happening like weeks after the governor, Jay Inslee, had declared a state of emergency on COVID-19. And so we were like, um, we need to speak out. We need to talk about this. Um, and so that's why we wanted to write a piece for a national outlet so we could maybe um, make some impact on the conversation and make sure people are aware like sweeps were happening um, during a pandemic and making things so much worse. Yeah, and the sweeps were a continuation of a policy happening before the pandemic, right? Yeah, um, I would say they were um, already quite harmful. Like every direct service provider, unhoused person we talked to um, did not support them in the first place. Um, basically what happens is that um, the navigation team, which is composed of police officers and social workers, um, go to an encampment um, and they can do it um, and they basically can take people's belongings away or destroy them and basically force them to move. Um, and so it was already a quite harmful practice um, before COVID-19, but then um, since everyone needs to practice social distancing, it just makes things everything worse because people are forced to crowd together in shelters or um, in other locations, um, and so that it really can endanger people's lives. Well, maybe you can give us um, like more of a background in the navigation teams and their tactics and what sort of that program and just the city's response in general has actually meant um, even before this crisis. So we kind of have an understanding of like what was going on because it's not, you know, it's not something you can just sort of look at at face value um, and say, oh, the navigation teams are like people who go out and help the homeless like the city would have you believe uh connect people up with services find them shelters um and the their uh their written rules we know like don't necessarily mean anything so can you give us a bit more of a background in that yeah that's actually a good question um guy made this graph that didn't quite get into our piece but it's a graph about comparing the um sweeps that are given 72 hour notice and the sweeps aren't that aren't and why that's important and why i'm bringing that up to answer your question is because um the people who show up to put it simply to a homeless encampment removal or sweeps um is really dependent on whether um it falls into either category and so the encampments that get posted with a 72-hour warning um are uh the uh, social services and um, caseworkers show up to those sweeps and they're helping navigate um, the residents of the encampment, um, the homeless individuals, um, and they're, they're there to help them navigate, literally navigate as a navigation team um, to shelter options, to resources, to make sure the people who have to get their stuff stored in storage um, know how to obtain their stuff after the removal happens. Um, but if the city deems an encampment an obstruction or a hazard or an extreme circumstance or it's in an emphasis zone, then the social workers, that part of the navigation team um, is no longer required to be there. And that has been the majority of the homeless sweeps, at least the past couple of years, especially in 2019. Um, and we've seen those ha happen even during the coronavirus epidemic. Yeah. And so the 72-hour notice was passed by the city, right, in order to try and make the sweeps that have been happening for years more humane. But you guys mentioned that it wasn't just that the no-notice sweeps were the majority. They were the vast majority of sweeps last year, right? Yes. So, um, yeah, I could also give a little bit more background on the navigation team. So the city has been conducting sweeps for at least five years, um, even before the city declared a state of emergency on homelessness. Uh, after it did so, it initially used different departments um, until in 2017, they formalized this navigation team. That's kind of the squad that removes people at like a more efficient rate. Um, and so um, this navigation team in 2017, they implemented those rules, but they still have this huge loophole where if an encampment is classified as an obstruction, it can just be swept with no notice. Um, and no outreach or referrals to shelter required. Um, and so what's happened is that um, about 93% of the 
of the sweeps in 2019 were just obstruction or hazard or these non 72 hour notice sweeps, uh, which is what we've seen. Um, and this is a very intentional strategy by the city because sweeps are ultimately more about the aesthetic of homelessness and uh, making sure that um, housed neighbors don't have to see um, their unhoused neighbors. Um, and so this is like the issue we're dealing with is that um, before the coronavirus even started here, um, it was already we were um, in a situation of more and more like punitive, uh, escalating punitive response mm -hmm. from the city. Yeah, and this is a city, right, where uh, you mentioned the article, home, the amount of people that are experiencing homelessness has gone up pretty much every year since 2012, uh, which would seem paradoxical given maybe our uh, middle school education and economics because the city has also seen uh, quite an economic boom in that time, right? Yet somehow we still have this growing homeless uh, population. How, do, how does that work? Yeah, um, I don't want to oversimplify the... The homelessness crisis that we have and you know to remind the listeners this has been a in a state of emergency um declared in 2015 so it's been a it's been a little while and like you mentioned growing worse every year um i think again not to oversimplify it but it, it comes down to is the city or the people in leadership willing to build affordable housing and i think when you look at mayor durkin's um trajectory thus far in her mayorship um, and the decisions she's making. Um, we see corporations willing to build temporary shelters um, a little by little, you know, Amazon buying Mary's place for a good press release here and there, um, but still not enough investment in affordable housing. And we see the studies that show that that is literally the only thing that's going to really uh, level out this crisis um, until we see that happening. It's, I don't know how else to put it other than the city is just not investing in certain type of people and demographics to stay in the city long-term. It's just not, they're not building a city for them, for the working class. Um, and, you know, we, we see those medium income affecting the housing prices. We see people getting priced out of their neighborhoods. Um, we see neighborhoods looking less and less like it did just a couple years ago. Um, and we're going to continue to see that happening unless we have elected leaders um, in those seats that are investing in the type of housing that the working class and black and brown communities can actually afford and live in. Yeah. And to add to this, this is a structural issue um, of neoliberalism, really, where um, sort of neoliberalism kind of denigrated um, the inner city as slums um, or as ghettos. Um, and so using that as a justification to um, remove public housing and remove all these um, safety nets for primarily black and brown people. Um, and then you have the foreclosure crisis, of course, which left a lot of people without their homes. And on top of that, now in Seattle, for the past 10 years, we've seen such a big economic boom, but it's all, all the gains are concentrated at the top, mostly the 1% and um, tech workers and people who can fit into that class. Um, and so that has left so many people behind. Um, and the city has just not stood up to the challenge and often actually worked counterproductively, um, I would say. And so the number one thing, like they mentioned, is getting more publicly owned affordable housing, um, as well as the city um, could have, over the past four years, done much better to create temporary shelters that can save lives. Um, last year, the city passed an ordinance sanctioning 40 new um, tent cities, like sanctioned encampments, as well as shelters, um, yet no funding has yet materialized for that. And um, we've seen this has been a huge detriment during the COVID-19 crisis where the city wasn't prepared really to deal with homelessness. And so now um, unhoused people who are at so much more risk for catching the virus. Uh, yeah. and. So, and that was the, this is the uh, McKinsey study uh, that you were citing in the piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that uh, has a similar ring to it as the, um, from, I guess, last year or the year before, maybe the uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce's study that basically just 
you know, again, from this uh, a corporate lobby, essentially just admitting we just need to spend more money on housing. So it seems like that's pretty much understood across the board. Yeah. Yes. Um, I would say that the facts are pretty clear. Um, there are still people out there who will say we have enough money um, to spend, um, which I don't believe is the case. Um, the city does need to raise a lot more money for housing um, if it really wants to deal with the crisis. But it's not doing that. It's uh, choosing the stick instead. Uh, you know, uh, trying to criminalize and sort of punish people in the hope that I guess what do we let's maybe talk about like where does what do you guys having sort of gone down this rabbit hole for so long um talk to people in the city done this reporting been on this issue for so long like what is the at the level of the city like what is what do they really believe when you know when we don't have the money being allocated but we do have um this sort of navigation team uh sort of shoe game uh shell game like where you have the navigation team is a really interesting thing because it's like they'll say you know as you were describing that on the one hand there's the nav version of the navigation team that gives warning and comes out with social workers etc and then there's one that's just the cops show up and roust you but they say it's all part of the same thing the navigation team um pretty suspicious uh it's almost like they're two different, completely different things, and one is a cover for the other. So, like, what what do we think? What do the people in power like really? I mean, what is their concept of this, and how, like, how do they justify to themselves uh, this sort of punitive approach in the absence of anything else? Sure. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's long term for them at all. Yeah. Um, I have been at many encampments during sweeps. And I've heard police officers and city workers say that hopefully if they continue to sweep a certain area enough times, um, the the people at the encampments will be tired and stop coming back. You know, it's a, wow. it's a tactic of who's going to bend first, right? And I wish I could get, I wish I had that in recording or some body cam footage of the cops saying that, or I would have made it into my story, but it's definitely good enough for Seattle Stucks podcast. <laughs> but, well said. Well said. <laughs> but I, no, it absolutely is. No, I mean, that's that. But I will say, feeling. but I mean, <laughs> it is, it is. And, I, and I've heard it multiple times. And, you know, I, I don't mind going on record saying that that is the type of language that's being heard, being said, and that, not only do I hear this, the people at the encampments hear this, yeah. you know, when you see body cam footage of police officers rolling up to an encampment and the first thing that comes out of their mouths is, mouth is who has a warrant, who has a warrant, show me your warrants. I'm going to look it up. What's your name? Let's see if you have warrants. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's completely bullying. It's a bullying tactic and it's to scare the people out of their homes um, into just freaking them out and not, and, most of them don't know their rights, but on the flip side, actually, a lot of them do know the policies of an encampment removal more and more. Yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these 72-hour notices are going away um, every month. And uh, it, it came to a point where the people at the encampments knew that if they kept their place clean, if they were away from these major hazards laid out by the city, yeah. that the city had no jurisdiction or no rights to remove their encampment. Yeah. And so we we built up a system to the point where uh, the people living at these encampments um, had trash 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 systems in place. They had um, a process where they knew what days the encampment removal people were coming. They knew what to do and they knew the questions to ask. Um, and I think the city caught on to that and are starting to get rid of that altogether um, yeah. because when the Go ahead. No, no, please. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that, you know, when the city kind of figured that out um, and the people living at these encampments figured out ways to um, combat the narrative that the city was trying to portray, uh, the city had no choice but to flip the 72-hour encampment removals into day of encampment removals where they're catching people off guard where they're not giving enough warning, where they're not required to provide shelter beds because they know shelter spaces were limited. Yeah, um, and that begs 
like an important question, I think, because like it's easy enough to imagine like some cops, you know, thinking of this as just like, you know, rousting these uh, marginalized people and making them go away and sort of, you know, would not surprise anyone that uh, you're the cops uh, in CISPD have like a simplistic view like that um, and an antagonistic one. But we've heard the same, like a different version, but just as chilling, maybe more so language from the mayor herself. Uh, the phrase like clean and hold, I think rings in my memory, um, which mm-hmm. is basically like treating uh, homeless encampments or areas where um, people set up tents as like strategic hamlets in a counterinsurgency doctrine war, like uh, the language of actually declaring war on these people that they just need to be defeated and go away. Um, so my question then is do when this creep happens, when this creep from the 72 hours to, Oh, now we're, you know, using the provisions that were built into the law, you know, and the regulations to say, oh, we can show up the day of and clear you because you're supposedly an obstruction. Is that, do we have a sense of whether that is mostly um, just SPD, like taking its own initiative um, and sort of uh, a sort of bureaucratic drift uh, at the bottom end there? Or is this like coming from the mayor's office? Do we have any way of knowing this or guessing? Um, I don't know if we are able to know for sure, 100%. Um, Erica C. Burnett did report um, back in May that um, the city, the mayor's office was the one who was pushing for more obstruction sweeps. Um, And basically it's really really an aesthetic um, desire to make sure that um, the people, people who are complaining about, uh, about unhoused encampments, um, don't see them anymore. They don't want to see. Yeah, you're referring to the people who matter. Oh um, yeah, like oftentimes people call them nimbies, right? Not in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. um, the stereotypical like wealthier, whiter, um, suburban kind of type of people who make up a significant amount of Seattle, um, and so um, they're the ones who really drive a lot of the sweeps. Where when they complain to the city, um, and they reported on this, I think a year ago. Um, through an app, they can actually basically facilitate the city then going to the encampments and sweeping them. Um, and so, yeah, and I also want to touch, there is this sort of logic of saviorism or like savior logic where um, Mayor Jenny Durkin and others have said like, they're doing this for the health of homeless people. Um, they're justifying sweeping people um, by saying that these encampments are super unsafe um, and unsanitary. And it's true. A lot of these places are, um, do have big issues, but they're really weaponizing, um, the fact that unhoused people are just trying to get by and trying to survive, um, and using that as a, and using these encampments as a justification to sweep them. Um, and yeah, and I think like they said, they're borrowing this language of criminalization, um, where homeless people become a criminalized, cast essentially um that the city can do whatever they want basically to um and so by sleeping on public um land that i mean these homeless people are entitled to since they're um residents of the city and so they're public part of the public uh, but this that becomes another justification sort of the carceral logic of deterrence that has criminalized so many black and brown people and unhoused people are also disproportionately black, brown, and indigenous. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, that, like, that brings up a interesting... <laughs> go I was going to say, that brings up sort of an interesting point, right, where um, we talked with a historian a couple of weeks ago, right, and she was talking about the you know town of Shacktown in Seattle, which was just essentially a large working poor encampment in Seattle, the progressive era. And they, at that time too, they used the sanitation logic for burning their houses to the ground. Right. Uh, yet nobody ever asked the question, right. Of, okay, you're burning it down because it's unsanitary, but what next for these people? Right. Uh, similarly, um, this idea of, criminalizing the homeless so therefore I'm going to remove them from this neighborhood but there's no question of like well where do they go like, we never seem to finish that thought right it's unsanitary they have to go 
but how to destroy their house help that situation. You know what I mean? Like, how can we never get... <laughs> uh, why do we never get to that next question of what's next after we remove these people? Well, I think that's the main goal. The main goal of navigation of the navigation team isn't to do outreach or to get people in housing. It's to remove these encampments. Um, and like one of you said, um, the sort of social services side becomes this shield to hide really the policing aspect of sweeps. Um, and I think it's, it's great that you mentioned, Brian, um, this history because um, this isn't something new. This is very deep in Seattle. Um, really, in the first colonization sort of era in the 1850s was when we saw the first kind of wave of displacement. Um, and so Duwamish and other indigenous people became, uh, lost their homes. Oftentimes settlers would burn their houses. Um, and so um, this sort of traumatic legacy of like continually pushing out certain groups of people, um, either through economic means or direct violence um, is, um, is still represented here today. Um, and so we see that coming back, cycling back again and again throughout many eras of this city's history. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting, and maybe you can expand this a little bit, but in your article, you even mentioned that Native people remain, you know, disproportionately homeless in this city. And uh, many of us will remember in 2011, I believe it was, when John T. Williams, who was a, you know, occasionally homeless Native American woodcarver, was murdered in broad daylight by a Seattle police officer during rush hour downtown. And essentially nothing happened, right? Um it, you know, uh, maybe it's a little more about how this, you know, some of these disenfranchised communities are especially affected by this problem. Yeah. I mean, um, people who um, are on the streets um, are disproportionately um, disabled and have um, and are often are disproportionately black, brown and indigenous because um, our our economic system is built on sort of disenfranchising, like you said. Um, black, brown, and indigenous people. And so when, um, and so we see people on the streets like John T. Williams and others um, sort of at the intersection of multiple um, harmful like state, state systems. Um, and so I think, um, I think that's a big issue for um, Seattle is that if it really wants to practice racial equity, it needs to um, not not make sweeps better, but just stop them. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you guys a question: um, Is what, if we should organize unhoused folks to take over public housing as squatting efforts, or Airbnb, or hotel? There are so many choices. I think like what San Francisco and Vegas together has about one hundred ninety thousand vacant hotel rooms right now. I want to say. And did oh, you yeah. see those lots that they're um, forcing the unhoused folks to be in the parking uh, lot with the lines painted on? <laughs> yeah, the yeah, with them the painted exactly, out like lines, six feet apart, laying on the pavement. Absolutely yeah. disgusting. And I can't well, I even imagine how be, many B and Bs. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, you know we saw the city buy a hotel in White Center, mm-hmm. right, to put uh, people in quarantine. They just bought a, a defunct nursing home for that has, I think, 160 rooms in it. Uh, again, for quarantine and things like that. They they blocked out 500 rooms in a hotel downtown for quarantine workers. Yet again and again, we constantly hear this. We just can't. Uh, build like we can't get any sort of long-term facilities or long-term housing together for homeless people. So, you know, what does that tell us when on a dime they seem to, be able to do it for literally anybody else? Right. I mean, I th- the question is, I don't know um, if you made it to the end of our very long piece in the nation. I'm surprised he let us publish 3,000 words, by the way. It's the longest shit I've <laughs> yeah. ever written. Um, but at the end, uh, the ACLU attorney, Brianne Schuster, um, said or told us that she's very curious to see, you know, there's different measures that the city is taking to at least appear that they care about the homeless community in our city. You know, they're trying to build more shelter space. They're stopping the sweeps. And what's what are they going to continue to do or what are they going to continue not to do when this pandemic at least slows down and the curve flattens out a little bit more? Um when I was talking to the folks at the Ballard encampment a couple of weeks ago, uh, they told me that the bike cops did indeed visit their encampment and let them know that they're going to be swept the following morning. All this is happening after the city, quote unquote, 
uh, announced that the sweeps have stopped temporarily through this pandemic. And the next morning, those bike cops showed up and let them know that um, that indeed that the mayor told them that they're not allowed to sweep right now, but they'll be back in a couple weeks. So be ready. Yeah, I mean, let's let's pause on that for a second, because I mean that when we talk about the sort of uh, cruelty of SPD and the sort of mindset of, of SPD, I thought that in your article kind of spelled it out perfectly. So, mm-hmm. you know, the city basically said we're not going to do any more encampment sweeps. What was it that day? <laughs> the Pike police or you know, these cops were over at uh, Ballard Public Library telling people in encampment that they're going to sweep them. And then the next morning they came back, right, and said, well, we can't do it right now. We're coming back the second we can. Is that correct? Yeah, they literally they gave a timeline like, hey, we'll be back next week, but maybe we won't be able to by then, but definitely in two weeks, which well, is coming up. So I, I need to go and check. By the way, that encampment, um, unfortunately, has not received the – and maybe they have – Unless it happened a couple of days ago, but the last time I checked, they have not received the sanit. How do you say it? The sanitization stations. Oh, the sanitation San- stations. Yeah, sanitation. Yeah, exactly. Get, uh, as of a year ago. Yeah, from Durkin. Um, that has not happened, and now there is a Hep A outbreak there, unfortunately. Um. Okay. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, th- those are the ones who were told by the bike cops. By the way, I do want to mention um that the North Precinct bike cops are some of the worst among spd um they have a they're the same precinct that's been fighting for that uh hundreds of million dollar police bunker that keeps getting shut down yeah. so they're definitely not the happiest group of cops um they want <laughs> uh they love the over militarization of policing they're all for it and they are continuing to push durkin and um juarez yeah our good friend deborah mm-hmm. um and pushing for that bunker. So yeah, that's the precinct that loves to go around on their bikes. They go to Ravenna, they go to Ballard. I know them very well. I've watched hours of their body cam footage. I know how each of them sound like. And so they're the ones going up to these encampments. And I don't know if they're, they're either lying to them and trying to hopefully scare them out of there without actually doing the sweeps. Right. I I agree with that too. But uh, I guess they could be, misinformed and finding out information a little late um but either way they're not doing what they're supposed to do thankfully they didn't conduct a sweep um but at the same time i don't think they would have had the resources to perform a sweep even if they wanted to because the city paused them so we'll see what happens in a week or two um i know Inslee extended the stay-at-home order till may 5th i'm not totally sure if that counts for um removing encampments but we're gonna have to check well it's well, yeah, it's whatever policy the city sets ultimately. But it's interesting. I do think this is really like this sort of incident that you uh, talk about in the piece. Actually, I'll just read it here. I think it's I think it says earlier in the piece uh, that it's the seventeenth was the day the order came down to that to stop yeah. the sweeps, and that it was yeah. the night the night of March nineteenth. You were you guys write uh, North Seattle. Uh, Seattle North Precinct police officers approached a 510 encampment at the Ballard branch of the Seattle Public Library, which was already closed due to pandemic. Um, And the officers told residents they had to either vacate the area or be forcibly removed the following morning. And you quote um, one of the residents, to be honest, I was surprised they gave us all till the next morning, a resident named Paul told the nation. They used to just come during the mornings and sweep us around 8 a.m., but not anymore. Now they do it at all times of day. I got swept at two in the morning last time and didn't know what to do. And what's interesting, what he's saying, he's surprised he's getting this warning at all because what had developed from, it sounds like what has developed, right, is from this initial sort of um, paradigm of the supposed navigation teams giving people notice and then trying to connect them with services 72 hours later to uh, SPD at someone's direction uh, you know, using exploiting the regulation of um, you know, classic like you know, poverty criminalization of exploiting obstruction laws and stuff to to come and rouse these people at any time with no warning to scare them off and get rid of them. And now the progression, once that was came down from the city, it's sound. It sounds very much like they rolled up on these people full well, knowing that they had no right. Uh, under their own orders from the city to sweep them, to ask them to leave under the sort of order because of coronavirus. 
but we're uh, just trying to scare them off. We're lying to them. And then the residents here called their bluff the next morning. So the question then is like, is this now what is going on now? Uh, are they rolling around everywhere? And how many people have they scared off who hightailed it to somewhere else in the middle of the night before for fear of being swept the next morning? You know? Yeah, a couple of weeks before the well, not I wouldn't say a couple of weeks. I would say maybe like a week before the ballot encampment. I was driving around um, on the hunt for the cops. It's so funny, you know. I a couple of encampments I arrived at. I saw some police officers there, obviously conducting a sweep, um, and then then immediately seeing them drive away. Have you ever had police officers run away from you? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, but that must be a fucking That's not awesome an experience feeling. I've had. Though. Yeah, that, no, it literally happened to me when I was under Soto Bridge by Airport Way, around the place where a gentleman named Alex got swept not too long ago. During the after the state of emergency NC declared, um, during the time where we it's already very clearly known coronavirus is a thing. Um, it's affecting people, and I was just looking for the place where he got swept. Um, because I was supposed to meet him around there to help him out and also see if there were other encampments there that were getting affected by the navigation team and the police officers, the city. Um, I arrived at this encampment. Um, sure enough, two cops in their patrol car on the side of the road and a city truck loading some of the items in the encampment into the truck. And it seems like they must have got there maybe 20, 30 minutes before I did. Um, I got to the encampment. I made it very known that um, I was there. I didn't want to spook the cops. The last thing you want to do is startle police officers. And so mm-hmm. yeah, they they saw me. Um, I told them I was wondering what happened to Alex, if they're still doing the sweep. Um, this was a day or two after Mike Fong, the deputy mayor, got completely annihilated in a city council briefing. Um, and this was a day after the city put out their first statement saying that all scheduled sweep stop unless it's an extreme hazard. And so I was there and I asked them if they're doing a sweep and if this sweep counted as an extreme hazard. And the officers quickly told me a a sweep was not happening, that they're just here for resources and that's it. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, That's good to know. Um, I asked if I could talk to anybody else. Um, They brought over one of the city workers. The city workers had no answers for me. It was very strange. The officers then told me that um, they called in their uh, sergeant to come in and talk to me, and he'll be there in five to ten minutes. So I said, uh, okay, that's fine, um, which was I thought it was a little strange that a police sergeant was coming all the way down to this encampment to talk to me. Um, a couple minutes later, the police officers told me that the sergeant was actually too busy now and changed his mind and wasn't coming, but uh, gave me the number to the city that – uh, to a person that I could possibly talk to to get my questions answered. I said, okay, that's fine. I asked if I uh, could talk to one of the residents because I saw somebody enter their tent in the, at the encampment. They told me that's fine. As soon as I walked over there, um, I asked the person in their tent if, if they got any notice of removal. And they told me that a couple of days before uh, they got posted for a sweep and that today was the day, the day that I was there. Um, they were supposed to get swept and they're actually cleaning up all their stuff, preparing to get swept. And I asked a couple of his neighbors who were also in their tents and they confirmed that they also got notices. And as I was talking to them, these cops got in their car and drove away and the city truck left too. So I, <laughs> nothing happened. I continued to go to that encampment um, the days following um, and they seemed untouched and i gave them my phone number and i told them to call me if they came back and try to do the sweep because um you know i let them know that the city put an order to uh, pause all sweeps until this pandemic was over but it was crazy it was crazy seeing the cops hightail out of there and really have no answers to me they told me that they weren't doing a sweep but they're just giving out resources i asked the people at the encampment they said they didn't receive anything no water no wipes nothing not even a flyer to ask them to wash their hands this was you're saying the day after, I guess what the 18th, the day after, yeah, they around the 18th, that... 19th. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it sounds like they posted, they posted, you know, the sweep notice before the city announced it was canceling the sweeps, and yeah, 
the navigation team or the cops decided, well, I mean, we already posted this one. I guess we're going to go out and do it, even though, you know. I mean, it was weird. They were like, oh, we're there passing out resources. But all I saw the city workers doing in their big truck was loading the items of a tent onto their truck. And that person was clearly not present. And we see that happen a lot. You know, we see sweeps happen often when the resident is not there, either getting food, either at some human services, and they often come back and see their stuff completely gone. Yeah. Yeah. You you have, you know, uh, a really sort of grim story uh, in the piece. Uh, uh, Maybe I'll I'll just pull an excerpt here. his name was uh, Rusnak. Uh, this is his last yep. name. Rusnak attempted to access emergency shelters all over the city, but was often found they were at capacity. In December 2018, he was staying in a tent shelter in the city. A few days before Christmas, he stepped away from his home to run errands and returned to find everything he owned gone. His only forms of shelter, Christmas presents for his children, tools, clothing, and objects of deep personal importance. Uh, and he is now the you say here is now um one of three unhoused plaintiffs in i think the lawsuit i think you mentioned that the aclu has filed against the city the suit uh, which was filed before the pandemic is uh argues that the city government has criminalized poverty and is punishing people for trying to live on city owned land um and it also says that when the city sweeps in a cabin it disturbs a homeless person's private affairs and invades their only source of privacy and refuge and that the city cannot do so without a warrant which uh encampment removals do not have so anyway look at it it's um whether from the sort of civil rights uh legal angle uh it's obviously I, yeah that seems like a very reasonable argument that 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 they're they should have a warrant to fuck with people's stuff but i mean it's you're just showing up and destroying the only tiny bit of a life that someone is trying to cling on to uh you know, I guess, to beautify yeah. the neighborhood. I mean, these are people's homes and shelters, um, even if they're temporary. And even the Ninth Circuit of the um, U.S. Um, federal courts has actually ruled that um, that these shelters, um, whether tents or vehicles, um, cannot be entered by police officers without a warrant. But the city is still conducting these removals Um and also to point to um, the the encampment they went to on the 18th, um, basically the city lied to um, direct service. Liars. Yeah, they lied. They lied yeah. to um, to like shelters and other people saying they'd already stopped planned sweeps, but here they are. They posted. They had at least two different um, scheduled sweeps. They tried to do. Um, one on the 11th that we wrote about that was kind of, did go through, and then this other one on the 18th, and the, those are just ones we know of. Um, but it's just ridiculous that the city would is obscuring and lying and um, not not telling the truth and not being sp- straight up. Um, and I think that's also a tactic to help continue their practices and not have to change anything. Yeah, the, well, the city council passed an ordinance where I think it was about a year ago. It became mandatory for the navigation team, FAS, um, HSD, all the departments involved in encampment removals to give weekly schedules to city council and let them know exactly what sweeps were happening. Of course, in fine print, it said only scheduled encampment removals. There is literally no way to know when these sweeps are happening anymore. Because, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast... You can't put a non-scheduled on a schedule. Exactly. Exactly. You can't put a non-scheduled encampment removal on this on this mandatory... Exactly. <laughs> and so, I, I got lucky seeing the cops trying to remove this encampment in the sneakiest way possible. I'm talking to ACLU attorneys. I'm talking to housing advocates like Real Change. They literally don't know when these things are happening until it's over, unless you happen to be there. Let's not even accidentally give the city too much credit here because we've been talking about this, these sweeps that are happening after the 17th, after the city said, oh, in light of this crisis that's going on, we're obviously going to stop um, shuffling people out of the only homes they have just to punish them. Uh, and they announced that and we're, you know, we've been talking about ways that 
the city has apparently still been trying to sweep people, at least on a few occasions here. But mm -hmm. really, and I think a big part of the reporting in your piece here, let's not forget, is that it was still absolutely just policy, the same continuing policy that we have talked about, this despicable policy we've had for the last several years of, uh, of you know, clean and hold, uh, sweeping people out of uh, their camps, uh, you know, fencing them up, whatever, was still the policy for after for over two weeks after Jay Inslee declared a state of emergency. So, and I think you, yeah, you report here um, that as far as you could find, it seems like, um, or actually, I think you, yeah, you cite Erica Barnett with this that mm -hmm. they had done at least fifteen sweeps between March first and uh, March seventeenth. So the day after Inslee's uh, state of emergency announcement and about two and a half weeks later. So yeah, that's bad yeah, enough and... as it is, right? That they, that, I mean, that this, that it took two and a half weeks for the city to let go of this program. Um, that was already sort of this despicable and punitive thing. But I mean, what does that tell us about how important this is? Uh, I mean, that, I guess what's the question is this more, does this tell us more about, how deeply ingrained this need to um, to get rid of and punish these people is in sort of the mind of our political class and our leadership, or is that more evidence of their just like fecklessness and incompetence and lack of imagination in the face of this current crisis? I mean, like which pick one? <laughs> Guy, you can pick. Yeah, um, I don't think it's simply incompetence. <laughs> um, I think it's. Um, they're, they're still operating under a logic that sweeps are necessary in some way. And this is just completely and utterly wrong. Um, and it's maybe similar to how people talk about how prisons are societally necessary. Yeah. Um, and so they can't admit it, it. As soon as they admit that they can just stop all sweeps, which they didn't actually do, even though they did halt the navigation team, um, then they basically betray the lie that these aren't necessary in the first place. And so displacing thousands of people every year is not necessary. Um, and I mean, like potentially putting people in danger or risk of death is not necessary. And so the, they're trying to circle the wagon here and say, oh, this is like, this is raw. This is like a necessary evil when it's not. Well, they're saying like, yeah, well, they're saying like, you know, yeah, we yeah. can't, oh, we can't, you know, put everybody in, shelters now because crowding people together is uh worse for the pandemic and uh you know rousing people from their tents is worse for the pandemic so they're using that they're really want trying to stress that as the only reason that this has to stop um lest it lest it be understood in the way that you uh just proposed that actually uh, we don't need to do this because if we don't need to do, because if we don't do this, and I think this is what they probably do understand. If we don't, if they don't keep um, getting rid of people, then people are, gonna, it's going to be a more consistently visible problem, even than it is now in a lot of neighborhoods. And then obviously your, your home, white homeowner NIMBYs, um, you know, next door people will be, you know, up in arms and yelling at them about it, but it also will sort of, uh, the more visible the problem is, the more it demands an actual solution that actually looks at the whole problem uh, on a systematic level and says, like, okay, if the answer isn't sweeping people up and just hoping they disappear, like, what do we actually have to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as long as they keep throwing people away, then um, this is exactly like prison. Um, just like you said, they can, um, if you quote unquote throw people away, they'll um, disappear, which is just wrong. It's yeah. Well, and I think and I think to using the police to do these roundups and stuff, it confers an air of legitimacy. Right. You know, the state is conferred an air of legitimacy for treating these people as subhuman. Right. These even the term sweeps itself. These are trash to be swept away. And I think, you know, part of the reason why we don't move towards housing, particularly now in this pandemic, is if they ever were to build housing for these people, what kind of message would that send that these people are actual human beings, that housing is an actual human right? You know, in a city ruled by real estate, who the fuck wants to hear that, right? Definitely not. Uh, it's it's not good for their pamphlets. It's not, I mean, even, th even when they do these one night counts, right? They're picking 
the the season, the time of day where they're least likely to find an unhoused individual. They don't count uh, people sleeping on steps at churches, etc. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to mask this problem as much as they can. And you know, it's the I- irony is that we're still the numbers are still really blown up. Uh, but even the McKinsey study doesn't really show to the fullest um, what our problem is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the same you know consultancy group that advised Canadian grocers that they should engage in bread price fixing basically came down and told Seattle, like, you need 15,000 houses right. now and 30,000 houses in the near future yeah. <laughs> right, to solve this crisis. It really highlights the crisis that we're looking at. And I think, you know, you talked about displacement at the beginning of the podcast of, you know, uh, populations that are, let's just say, easy to forget about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Central District you know, if you were to ask or talk to anybody in the city about the central district now, I think their main comment on it would be what a hot real estate market, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, that just seems to have been what's happened to the working class of Seattle, which is they were displaced and now it's a hot real estate market. Guy, were you the one who told me Pete Buttigieg worked for the McKinsey study? <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He yeah. worked for a McKinsey <laughs> company. So, I mean, they're not a great company. But <laughs> even them, the fact that even these... Uh, like this consulting group that um, like uses very ne- neoliberal economics um, can reach the conclusion that there needs to be a lot more public housing um, shows just how cowardly the political class is in Seattle. Um, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it shows, it shows, well, they're answering the question, what do you, what would you have to do if you wanted to solve this problem? But I think what we see is like our political class and, you know, the real estate interests and whoever else, don't want to solve the problem. They want to uh, make it go away by they're, they're comfortable doing that by um, turning by, you know, labeling the most marginalized people in society as basically a criminal underclass. Um, and I think that's, you know, to maybe start um, taking this in a final direction here. Uh, like we know again with homelessness, with, all of this, we know like that uh, part of the reason it's so easy to, to lay to view people as this criminal underclass who, that society should respond to with the police um, that uh, should be driven out is because we are talking about um, often the most marginalized groups in society where, you know, this is uh, obviously it's poor people, um, but it's, you know, black and brown people, indigenous people in, um, queer people, all in outsized numbers. Uh, you know, the most, basically the most marginalized people in society. Um, this is how we, this is how our society has dealt with it here in Seattle in terms of the homeless problem. But when we see that these are the groups that get hurt the most, but like, let's just talk about coronavirus now because this is bigger than homelessness. Obviously it's totally like, um, exacerbating this already like massive wound we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we are, uh, we don't have a health system that can handle this and you can guess like who's going to get the worst of that. And I think we're starting to finally, we're actually starting to see statistics sort of start to come out about the death rate. Um, and it, I don't think it would be surprise anyone to know that like black and brown people, uh, make up a larger portion of that than, uh, they do the population. Um, we are heading into, uh, like probably a massive economic depression. Um, like I, I, I fear this as a coming sort of genocide of the poor and marginalized people in this country. And I'm, I, I just would love to hear your thoughts on that from both of you. Like, what do you see coming? I mean, I want to start off by saying the unfortunate part of this whole thing is that we're not even going to be able to properly document all the death that happens within the unhoused communities linked to COVID-19 mm-hmm. because there's already a huge lack of resource on and accessibility on um, unhoused folks getting access to things like tests and healthcare. And so we, we're going to see a, a larger number of homeless folks um, die and face health crisis. Um, and a lot of it will be linked to this uh, pandemic, but there's not going to be any records of that. And that's just going to be the yeah. unfortunate part because it's another way for the city to brush it under the rug um, and well, for, for the them whole country. to just claim. Yeah, exactly. For the whole country. I, I, I see us, I mean, in five, 
10, 20 years, we people will be arguing about the number attributable number of dead attributable to coronavirus. And most people will think it's way lower than it really is. And oh yeah. People like us will like will, you know, be angry about that fact and like know that, you know, uh some huge number of people died and you know, uh it just that that's that's the right is in power in this country and it's our dis- country's dysfunctional anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well well Greg, to give you this idea of you know sort of what Greg said about we'll argue about the death count, uh you know, I was living in, in San Antonio when Hurricane Katrina happened and I knew and helped fund a lot of people to go to New Orleans to do work there. And I remember them coming back and having talked to a lot of people in New Orleans and stuff and asking, you know, like, how many people did you think died? And their guess was along the Gulf Coast, easily thousands in New Orleans itself, hundreds, if not thousands. And I think the official death count for Katrina in New Orleans was like 60. Jeez. And for reasons that, um, you know, like how houses were marked, you know, you'd mark the house and you'd mark whether there was bodies in the house or not. There was more than 60 of those markings like in a neighborhood. And so I think we just live in this world where they just tell you whatever, fuck it, who cares, right? A hundred people died from Corona, right? Who's going to ask, right? Nobody cares about these people. And I think that's especially grim, but um, I, I, you know, I I just can't see, especially with homeless people, it happening any different this time around. Yeah, I mean, I think we should not undercount um, the scale of the crisis right now. Um, And like you said, um, the people who are going to be most affected are those who are already affected by um, capitalism, racism, patriarchy, ableism, et cetera, Mm -hmm. Um, and especially in-house people fall in that category. Um, And so I think this is also an opportunity for um, social solidarity um, for people as individuals and in collective communities to um, kind of make a difference. Um, Even small things are huge. Um, Checking in with your friends um, and staying at home, socially distancing, contributing to mutual aid projects, like all these things will save lives. Um, And so we need to also um, think about how we can respond. Um, I think it's very, it's, it can be very daunting and demotivating um, to consider the fact that we have a fascist like Trump um, in power and the state, um, which is already so fucked up, is has um, very um, incompetent and malicious actors running it. Um, but that just underscores the important importance of um, organizing digitally and um, with our communities um, to build power and to um, do these small actions which will save lives and um, hopefully shift towards the world uh, we want to be living in. Yeah, uh, we can only hope. I think, you know, important to recognize also, though, that, like, the right is also going to use this uh, and they're in power. And so just on a maybe a smaller scale right here in Washington, um, the, uh, you know, the uh, Inslee just line item vetoed a bunch of spending. Um, I haven't even I don't really understand what it is that he took out of the budget, but um, because in this, that's all we have. We have austerity. We don't understand economics in any other way. We know we're heading into a depression, so uh, there's no help from the federal government, so Washington State gonna cut spending, and uh, this is, we're talking about, you know, this is a supposedly progressive Democratic governor who, but this is all that's apparently available to him. This is all the imagination. This is all the fight, and he, you know, egged on by the the Seattle Times Ed Board a, a couple days earlier. Who I just this is a this is great. Um, coronavirus requires painful cuts to Washington State budget. Oh, they're so sad that it's going to be painful. Um, and they say in this, the Ed Board says Inslee is expected to veto some new spending before signing the budget into law on Friday. He must not hold back. That requires political courage, <laughs> but there's simply no choice. Uh, this is what we're up against, gang. Never it's let completely ridiculous. Never let a good crisis go to waste, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. I think the left um, is just has historically been so much worse at exploiting sort of this shock doctrine, as Naomi Klein says. Um, and so we need to um, organize, like, um, for example, Shama Sawant has been doing a lot of great work um, to push Jay Inslee and others 
um, towards the opposite direction because austerity doesn't work. Um, it screws over poor people and working class. Right. And so we need we need our, our the politicians that are quote unquote more progressive to actually be accountable yeah. and do the right thing. And I do want to shout. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just going to say, I do also want to shout out like the organizing groups that have been doing really good work on the ground, yeah, um, sure. collecting resources uh, for under-resourced neighborhoods. Uh, COVID-19 mutual aid is one in particular I'm thinking of um, that has uh, grassroots activists, but also healthcare workers uh, trying to make sure that resources from the city and within communities are uh, equally distributed because we all know that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think, you know, this idea of uh, mutual aid, social solidarity, class solidarity, I mean, that's going to be more important than ever, um, you know, without any sort of rent freeze or anything. I mean, quite frankly, we're going to come out of this with a lot more homelessness. Um, and I think the issue is we talked earlier about, you know, uh, the police are told they can't go to the tents without a warrant. They do it anyways. The police are told not to sweep encampments. They do it anyways. And the reality is, you know, laws, city regulations, all that. That's just words on paper. And without a countervailing force, there's nothing to stop these people from doing, you know, there's to stop cops from doing what they want to do, right? There's yeah. to stop real estate interests from using the cops to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And really, class solidarity is going to be it. I mean, Day, you brought up the issue of like, you know, should we just have people be squatting in buildings and taking over them? I think that's fucking great. And that'd be awesome if it happened. And if it happened, the rest of us who are housed need to be prepared to go down there for when the police go to mob that building. Right to you know actually yeah. defend it right yeah. and, and we need um, to be organizing that's, now that, that's the real deal we need yeah. to be organizing now so that when people can come together um they're ready to yeah. start shit and we're seeing it yeah. happen in oakland we're seeing it happen in other cities uh we need to be taking their lead for sure yeah i think uh need to be i think squ- the squatting is a great thing i mean uh i would love to mob a downtown hotel and just uh, demand of the management that they open, uh, get, hand out all the room keys. Uh, sounds great. Yeah, maybe one of the balls. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I heard mean, their temperature is perfect. always like pristine. Uh, perfect, perfect place <laughs> to uh, set up a tent. Actually, <laughs> if you, exactly under a tree in the balls. Uh, if he wants his boys to swim, temperatures got to be controlled. Oh my god! Imagine Bezos's face when he finds out one of his balls is overtaken. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> Normal people get testicular cancer. Bezos, his balls get occupied. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We should first like bring his like warehouse workers there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like yeah. I bet. He- <laughs> I bet he's sitting somewhere thinking to himself, gosh, you know, I really wish I could let uh, all the homeless people into the balls and I wish I could just give away, uh, you know, billions of dollars of my wealth to help people. But that would set a precedent. (laughs) And gosh, you know, that would just be a moral hazard for the world um, to come to rely on my wealth that I created. Uh, I, I just like try to imagine myself as a, uh, more a uh, billionaire morally justifying my disgusting wealth. Uh, it's just a hobby of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my Northwest is already yeah. reporting out stats like burglary is up 80% in downtown Seattle in the past couple of weeks, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, joking aside, I, I've been saying, for, you know, we've been saying for a long time that this class war happening in our city is going to reach a pressure point that's eventually going to blow up. And I'm not condoning violence or anything like that at all, but it's going to come to a point where uh, the people being harassed, their tents destroyed, generators thrown away, swept every other week. They're either going to end up dying or they're going to end up having to push back. And I, I, I literally, I don't know what that looks like. And mm-hmm. I think at, it's four weeks ago before we're in shelter in place to talk loosely about organizing a group of people to do a joint squatting effort um, with the very high likelihood that we can help with their resistance and help keep them safe through this crisis. Um, that's, that seemed totally unrealistic. Um, but I think right now with everything that's going on, I think that is one of the more logical next steps to help our unhoused communities. Um, and I think as we see more and more desperation 
continue to permeate in our city, um, things that we thought were out of reach um, suddenly becomes our only option moving forward. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something's got to break at some point. Um, uh, well, I think, you know, we've covered a lot of ground there. Um, yeah. How, we how got through the technical up? difficulties. Yeah, we did. Um, we did. I, I blame <laughs> the virus. Yeah. Yeah. 5G. It's 5G. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, listen, it's been super awesome to talk to you. Sorry, we lost Colin. I guess uh, he had just everything went wrong in this. Uh, Sorry, Colin. It's all good. Um, it'll turn out okay. Uh, <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this really great conversation. Everyone should. Um, we'll link to it. We've tweeted it, but I'll, we'll tweet it again. We'll link to it in the description, and everyone should read this um, Nation article um, because uh, there's a lot in there and a lot of. Um, really uh deep reporting uh that really sort of exposes a lot um of specifics about sort of what has been going on um so appreciate that uh thank you definitely yeah. everybody check that out thanks again so much thank you uh, for having us guy and day um yeah <laughs> uh stay safe and sane out there uh yeah see you on the boat <laughs> see ya <laughs> Yeah, I'll see you guys.